Stabat Mater Dolorosa, Justa Crucem Lacrimosa, Dum Pendebat Filius, Ducestawe Ducaburi, Put Um Kaltalo Tevoili, Ubiasli Cursamuli. At the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. These lines we've just heard in their original Latin and translations in Konkani and English, with all their grief and sorrow, are the beginning of a 13th-century hymn known as the Stabat Mater, or the Sorrowful Mother. Through most episodes of the Altar of Time, we've seen that guilt and sinfulness are often central to Catholicism. But this is something beyond that. A tender human image of a helpless mother watching the slow, agonizing death of her son. Unable to stop the violence, gore and humiliation her son must endure, this lone, brave woman stands by him, her presence consoling her son through his agony. As we witness her through the hymn of the Stabat Mater, we cannot help but feel a profound sense of sadness and empathy. Welcome to the Altar of Time, a history of India's Christian art. Perhaps the most famous and easily recognizable of these works of art was produced by the Italian artist Michelangelo in the 15th century. Called the Pieta, it is a flawless marble rendition of the eternally youthful Mother Mary with the athletic body of Christ sprawled across her lap. This depiction of what should be an intimate moment of grief frozen in cold white marble comes across as somewhat voyeuristic and realistic to our modern eyes. But today, we'll focus on two very different representations of the Sorrowing Virgin from the collection of the Museum of Christian Art. At first glance, these two paintings might seem to be copies of each other. Both were produced in the 17th century, a few centuries after Michelangelo. Both dramatically highlight the figure of the Virgin through layers and swaths of drapery. Softly lit, she stands apart from the flat, dark background framed by vividly coloured ribbons and flowers. In both paintings, the Virgin's downcast eyes face turned away from the viewer and her palms clasped against her breast in hopeless prayer create an air of suffering and pathos. A crescent moon at her feet in both images alludes to the ancient Christian idea that Mary, unlike other humans, was born free of original sin. More on this in our episode about the ivory statuette of Nirmala Mata. But that's where the similarities end. In one image, Mother Mary is seated on a pile of stones with a single sword piercing her breast behind her clasped palms. The Blessed Virgin is seated and appears larger. In the second image, the Virgin is standing and instead of a single sword, her breast is pierced by seven swords. 
four to her right, three to her left, arranged like a halo around her heart. It is one thing to capture the sorrow of a mother on the death and suffering of her son like Michelangelo attempts to in his Pieta. But why depict this moment of maternal pain in such a seemingly macabre way? Are these swords symbolic of something else? To understand this interesting iconography, we have to go back to the Gospel according to St. Luke. Forty days after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph took the baby to the temple in Jerusalem to present him to God and to purify Mary after childbirth. These practices were in keeping with the Jewish law at the time. While in the temple, an elderly man named Simeon took the child into his arms, praised God for keeping him alive to see salvation firsthand, and exclaimed that he is now willing to die in peace. Imagine the discomfort the young Joseph and Mary must have felt, barely used to handling a child in public places, and still perhaps recovering from the unusual events and characters that already surrounded the birth of their child. After blessing the young family, Simeon turns to Mary and says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own heart too. This image of a sword-pierced heart was the beginning of the tradition we allude to in the beginning of this episode. The Catholic devotion to and representations of the Virgin Mary focusing on the pain and suffering she endured as the Mother of Christ. In the late medieval period, we have a striking example of how communities were organized around this. In 1423, a gathering of provincial bishops in the German town of Cologne recognized a feast to Our Lady of Sorrows, a pre-existing tradition in the region. The feast was dedicated to the veneration of Mary's sorrows during the crucifixion and death of Christ. This is just one example of this popular and widely spread tradition, of course. Closer to home, in Divar Goa, a church to the Sorrowful Mother, Our Lady of Piety, was built in the 1700s. One of the titles of the Sorrowful Mother holds a clue to the seven swords that pierce her chest in the painting we saw earlier. She is sometimes called Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows or Our Lady of the Seven Dollars. The Seven Sorrows are a series of episodes from the life of Jesus. The first, Simeon's prophecy, which we have just seen. The second, Mary and Jesus had to flee from Israel to Egypt to save the baby Jesus from the murderous King Herod. The third, when Jesus was a child, his parents lost him for three days while he kept himself busy debating with doctors and priests. The fourth, when Jesus was an adult, Mary met him carrying his cross on his way to his own crucifixion with an escort of Roman troops and a crowd of followers. The fifth, she witnessed his brutal crucifixion and death. The sixth, she took down his body from the cross. And the seventh, the mother finally buried her child. Not all of these are in the Bible, but they are part of Catholic tradition. So the halo of seven swords we just saw encircling the sorrowing virgin in the collection of the Museum of Christian Art 
are a part of a long, rich, symbolic tradition focusing on the divine manifestation of a very human emotion. Let us contemplate these two images and absorb their composition. Our eyes leave the sorrowing virgin clothed in a red tunic with a veil drapery in blue and travel around the painting, guided by the peculiar way it is framed, with disproportionately large, loud flowers. This floral frame is the same warm color palette as her garments and is interspersed with what appears to be a hanging ribbon in a cheery striped pattern gathered in bunches in the upper corners. From these corners emerge suspended tassels that are similar to the jumkas or cupola-shaped earrings we see across South Asia. But what explains the overall composition of this painting? Let us revisit Europe in the middle of the 15th century where Italy and Flanders were emerging as the most important artistic centers in Europe. They were both major trading hubs with large and growing urban centers and a growing ruling class, all of which created excellent conditions for the commissioning and production of art. Ghent, Bruges and Ypres, all in the Flanders region of present-day Belgium, were particularly important centers. Most Flemish paintings of this period always depicted a scene that was framed, usually through a window, rendered with bright colors and considerable attention to detail. They were rarely based on preliminary sketches from real life, which meant that landscapes were usually depicted with highly stylized elements, jagged rocks with no vegetation, colorful towns with jutting towers in the distance, feather-shaped trees with long, thin trunks. Figures were distributed in a balanced way, usually grouped around either at the center, if there was only one, or symmetrically spaced if there were more. The action was very restrained and hardly left room for movement. Gradually, portrait artists in Flanders attempted to capture their subject's sitter's character. In fact, they were among the first European artists to do so. Flemish portraits depicted the figure less than half-length, slightly turned to the side rather than frontally, against a dark, neutral background, and with some symbol on their face or in their hand. The fact that the person was slightly turned meant they were directly involved in the space rather than simply occupying a space filled with furniture or with an architectural background. Only the presence of the figure against a lost background insinuated the existence of volume and space. Around this time, we also see artists experimenting with floral motifs and ribbons in the frame to add further contrast to the central space. We see the two paintings of Our Lady of Sorrows exhibiting many of the characteristics typical of the paintings from this time and region. They are framed in cascading ribbons and bright flowers. She seated on a jagged rock in one, but in both paintings, maintaining a graceful, symmetric composure with the face and body slightly turned towards the side against a dark background. The more we gaze at these solemn, almost lyrical compositions of grief, the more we wonder how they made their way to Goa. While there is little or no documented evidence of a strong Flemish presence in Goa, we see echoes of their influence in the Flemish scroll decorations on the facade of the Salvaro do Mundo church and its ornamentation and vaults across the churches, argued by Paolo Varela Gomes and reiterated by Vivek Menezes and Lester Silvera. 
Were the paintings of Our Lady of Sorrows in the Mocha collection possibly painted in Flanders and brought to Goa by members of the different congregations that lived and worked there? They were often not homogeneously Portuguese or Spanish, but came from different parts of Europe. Or were these paintings painted in Goa? They might have been small acts of nostalgia and longing, not unlike the other Flemish elements left behind in church architecture details. While we cannot be certain of these things, what we know for sure is the deep sense of sorrow, pathos and isolation the Blessed Virgin Mary must have felt, helpless at the suffering of her son. A loneliness and pain that transcends region, artistic idiom and time. These emotions have appeared again and again in art for a reason, emphasized and captured poignantly in the two images of Our Lady of Sorrows against dark backgrounds and framed by large, brightly colored flowers. <laughs>